Book the Second, Chapter Nineteen, An Opinion. Worn out by anxious watching, Mr. Lorry fell asleep at his post. On the tenth morning of his suspense, he was startled by the shining of the sun into the room where a heavy slumber had overtaken him when it was dark night. He rubbed his eyes and roused himself, but he doubted, when he had done so, whether he was not still asleep. For, going to the door of the doctor's room and looking in, he perceived that the shoemaker's bench and tools were put aside again, and that the doctor himself sat reading at the window. He was in his usual morning dress, and his face, which Mr. Lorry could distinctly see, though still very pale, was calmly studious and attentive. Even when he had satisfied himself that he was awake, Mr. Lorry felt giddily uncertain for some few moments whether the late shoemaking might not be a disturbed dream of his own, for did not his eyes show him his friend before him in his accustomed clothing and aspect, and employed as usual? And was there any sign within their range that the change of which he had so strong an impression had actually happened? It was but the inquiry of his first confusion and astonishment, the answer being obvious. If the impression were not produced by a real corresponding and sufficient cause, how came he, Jarvis Lorry, there? How came he to have fallen asleep in his clothes on the sofa, in Dr. Manette's consulting room, and to be debating these points outside the doctor's bedroom door in the early morning? Within a few minutes, Miss Pross stood whispering at his side. If he had had any particle of doubt left, her talk would of necessity have resolved it, but he was by that time clear-headed and had none. He advised that they should let the time go by until the regular breakfast hour, and should then meet the doctor as if nothing unusual had occurred. If he appeared to be in his customary state of mind— Mr. Lorry would then cautiously proceed to seek direction and guidance from the opinion he had been, in his anxiety, so anxious to obtain. Miss Pross, submitting herself to his judgment, the scheme was worked out with care. Having abundance of time for his usual methodical toilette, Mr. Lorry presented himself at the breakfast hour in his usual white linen and with his usual neat leg. The doctor was summoned in the usual way and came to breakfast. So far as it was possible to comprehend him without overstepping those delicate and gradual approaches which Mr. Lorry felt to be the only safe advance— he at first supposed that his daughter's marriage had taken place yesterday. An incidental allusion, purposely thrown out to the day of the week and the day of the month, set him thinking and counting, and evidently made him uneasy. In all other respects, however, he was so composedly himself that Mr. Lorry determined to have the aid he sought, and that aid was his own. Therefore, when the breakfast was done and cleared away, and he and the doctor were left together, Mr. Lorry said feelingly, My dear Manette, I am anxious to have your opinion in confidence 
on a very curious case in which I am deeply interested. That is to say, it is very curious to me. Perhaps, to your better information, it may be less so. Glancing at his hands, which were discolored by his late work, the doctor looked troubled and listened attentively. He had already glanced at his hands more than once. Dr. Manette, said Mr. Lorry, touching him affectionately on the arm, the case is the case of a particularly dear friend of mine. Pray give your mind to it and advise me well for his sake, and above all for his daughter's. His daughter's, my dear Manette. If I understand, said the doctor in a subdued tone, some mental shock? Yes. Be explicit, said the doctor. Spare no detail. Mr. Lorry saw that they understood one another and proceeded. My dear Manette, it is the case of an old and prolonged shock, of great acuteness and severity to the affections, the feelings, the, the, as you express it, the mind, the mind. It is a case of a shock under which the sufferer was borne down, one cannot say for how long, because I believe he cannot calculate the time himself, and there are no other means of getting at it. It is the case of a shock from which the sufferer recovered by a process that he cannot trace himself, as I once heard him publicly relate in a striking manner. It is the case of a shock from which he has recovered so completely as to be a highly intelligent man, capable of close application of mind and great exertion of body, and of constantly making fresh additions to his stock of knowledge, which was already very large. But unfortunately, there has been, he paused and took a deep breath, a slight relapse. The doctor, in a low voice, asked, Of how long duration? Nine days and nights. How did it show itself, I infer, glancing at his hands again, in the resumption of some old pursuit connected with the shock? That is the fact. Now, did you ever see him? asked the doctor distinctly and collectedly, though in the same low voice, engaged in that pursuit originally. Once, and when the relapse fell on him, was he in most respects, or in all respects, as he was then? I think in all respects. You spoke of his daughter. Does his daughter know of the relapse? No, it has been kept from her, and I hope will always be kept from her. It is known only to myself and to one other who may be trusted. The doctor grasped his hand and murmured, That was very kind. That was very thoughtful. Mr. Lorry grasped his hand in return, and neither of the two spoke for a little while. Now, my dear Manette, said Mr. Lorry at length in his most considerate and most affectionate way. I am a mere man of business and unfit to cope with such intricate and difficult matters. I do not possess the kind of information necessary. 
I do not possess the kind of intelligence I want guiding. There is no man in this world on whom I could so rely for right guidance as on you. Tell me, how does this relapse come about? Is there danger of another? Could a repetition of it be prevented? How should such a repetition of it be treated? How does it come about at all? What can I do for my friend? No man can ever have been more desirous in his heart to serve a friend than I am to serve mine if I knew how. But I don't know how to originate in such a case. If your sagacity, knowledge, and experience could put me on the right track, I might be able to do so much. Unenlightened and undirected, I can do so little. Pray discuss it with me. Pray enable me to see it a little more clearly and teach me how to be a little more useful. Dr. Manette sat meditating after these earnest words were spoken, and Mr. Lorry did not press him. I think it probable, said the doctor, breaking silence with an effort, that the relapse you have described, my dear friend, was not quite unforeseen by its subject. Was it dreaded by him? Mr. Lorry ventured to ask. Very much. He said it with an involuntary shudder. You have no idea how such an apprehension weighs on the sufferer's mind and how difficult, how almost impossible it is for him to force himself to utter a word upon the topic that oppresses him. Would he? asked Mr. Lorry, be sensibly relieved if he could prevail upon himself to impart that secret brooding to anyone when it is on him. I think so. But it is, as I have told you, next to impossible. I even believe it in some cases to be quite impossible. Now, said Mr. Lorry, gently laying his hand on the doctor's arm again after a short silence on both sides. To what would you refer this attack? I believe, returned Dr. Manette, that there had been a strong and extraordinary revival of the train of thought and remembrance that was the first cause of the malady. Some intense associations of a most distressing nature were vividly recalled, I think. It is probable that there had long been a dread lurking in his mind that those associations would be recalled, say, under certain circumstances, say, on a particular occasion. He tried to prepare himself in vain. Perhaps the effort to prepare himself made him less able to bear it. Would he remember what took place in the relapse? asked Mr. Lorry with natural hesitation. The doctor looked desolately around the room, shook his head, and answered in a low voice, Not at all. Now, as to the future, hinted Mr. Lorry. As to the future, said the doctor, recovering firmness, I should have great hope. As it pleased heaven in its mercy to restore him so soon, I should have great hope. He, yielding under the pressure of a complicated something long dreaded and long vaguely foreseen and contended against, 
and recovering after the cloud had burst and passed, I should hope that the worst was over. Well, well, that's good comfort. I am thankful, said Mr. Lorry. I am thankful, repeated the doctor, bending his head with reverence. There are two other points, said Mr. Lorry, on which I am anxious to be instructed. I may go on? You cannot do your friend a better service. The doctor gave him his hand. To the first, then. He is of a studious habit and unusually energetic. He applies himself with great ardor to the acquisition of professional knowledge, to the conducting of experiments, to many things. Now, does he do too much? I think not. It may be the character of his mind to be always in singular need of occupation. That may be in part natural to it, in part the result of affliction. The less it was occupied with healthy things, the more it would be in danger of turning in the unhealthy direction. He may have observed himself and made the discovery. You are sure that he is not under too great a strain? I think I am quite sure of it. My dear Manette, if he were overworked now, my dear Laurie, I doubt if that could easily be. There has been a violent stress in one direction, and it needs a counterweight. Excuse me as a persistent man of business, assuming for a moment that he was overworked. It would show itself in some renewal of this disorder? I do not think so. I do not think, said Dr. Manette with the firmness of self-conviction, that anything but the one train of association would renew it. I think that henceforth nothing but some extraordinary jarring of that cord could renew it. After what has happened, and after his recovery, I find it Difficult to imagine any such violent sounding of that string again. I trust, and I almost believe that the circumstances likely to renew it are exhausted. He spoke with the diffidence of a man who knew how slight a thing would overset the delicate organization of the mind, and yet with the confidence of a man who had slowly won his assurance out of personal endurance and distress. It was not for his friend to abate that confidence. He professed himself more relieved and encouraged than he really was, and approached his second and last point. He felt it to be the most difficult of all, but, remembering his old Sunday morning conversation with Miss Pross and remembering what he had seen in the last nine days, he knew that he must face it. The occupation resumed under the influence of this passing affliction so happily recovered from, said Mr. Lorry, clearing his throat. We will call blacksmith's work. Blacksmith's work. We will say, to put a case and for the sake of illustration, that he had been used, in his bad time, to work at a little forge. We will say that he was unexpectedly found at his forge again, is it not a pity that he should keep it by him? 
The doctor shaded his forehead with his hand and beat his foot nervously on the ground. He has always kept it by him, said Mr. Lorry with an anxious look at his friend. Now, would it not be better that he should let it go? Still the doctor with shaded forehead beat his foot nervously on the ground. You do not find it easy to advise me, said Mr. Lorry. I quite understand it to be a nice question, and yet I think... And there he shook his head and stopped. You see, said Dr. Manette, turning to him after an uneasy pause, it is very hard to explain consistently the innermost workings of this poor man's mind. He once yearned so frightfully for that occupation, and it was so welcome when it came. No doubt it relieved his pain so much by substituting the perplexity of the fingers for the perplexity of the brain, and by substituting, as he became more practiced, the ingenuity of the hands for the ingenuity of the mental torture, that he has never been able to bear the thought of putting it quite out of his reach. Even now, when I believe he is more hopeful of himself than he has ever been, and even speaks of himself with a kind of confidence, the idea that he might need that old employment and not find it gives him a sudden sense of terror, like that which one may fancy strikes to the heart of a lost child. He looked like his illustration as he raised his eyes to Mr. Lorry's face. But may not. Mind. I ask for information as a plodding man of business who only deals with such material objects as guineas, shillings, and banknotes. May not the retention of the thing involve the retention of the idea? If the thing were gone, my dear Manette, might not the fear go with it? In short, is it not a concession to the misgiving to keep the forge? There was another silence. You see, too, said the doctor tremulously, it is such an old companion. I would not keep it, said Mr. Lorry, shaking his head, for he gained in firmness as he saw the doctor disquieted. I would recommend him to sacrifice it. I only want your authority. I am sure it does no good. Come, give me your authority like a dear good man, for his daughter's sake, my dear Manette. Very strange to see what a struggle there was within him. In her name, then, let it be done, I sanction it. But I would not take it away while he was present. Let it be removed when he is not there. Let him miss his old companion after an absence. Mr. Lorry readily engaged for that, and the conference was ended. They passed the day in the country, and the doctor was quite restored. On the three following days, he remained perfectly well, and on the fourteenth day, he went away to join Lucy and her husband. The precaution that had been taken to account for his silence, Mr. Lorry had previously explained to him and he had written to Lucy in accordance with it, and she had no suspicions. On the night of the day on which he left the house, Mr. Lorry went into his room with a chopper, saw, chisel, and hammer, attended by Miss Pross carrying a light. There, with closed doors, 
and in a mysterious and guilty manner, Mr. Lorry hacked the shoemaker's bench to pieces, while Miss Pross held the candle as if she were assisting at a murder, for which, indeed, in her grimness, she was no unsuitable figure. The burning of the body, previously reduced to pieces convenient for the purpose, was commenced without delay in the kitchen fire, and the tools, shoes, and leather were buried in the garden. So wicked do destruction and secrecy appear to honest minds that Mr. Lorry and Miss Pross, while engaged in the commission of their deed and in the removal of its traces, almost felt and almost looked like accomplices in a horrible crime. Chapter 20 A Plea When the newly married pair came home, the first person who appeared to offer his congratulations was Sidney Carton. They had not been at home many hours when he presented himself. He was not improved in habits or in looks or in manner, but there was a certain rugged air of fidelity about him which was new to the observation of Charles Darnay. He watched his opportunity of taking Darnay aside into a window and of speaking to him when no one overheard. Mr. Darnay, said Carton, I wish we might be friends. We are already friends, I hope. You are good enough to say so as a fashion of speech, but I don't mean any fashion of speech. Indeed, when I say I wish we might be friends, I scarcely mean quite that either. Charles Darnay, as was natural, asked him in all good humor and good fellowship what did he mean. Upon my life, said Carton, smiling, I find that easier to comprehend in my own mind than to convey to yours. However, let me try. You remember a certain famous occasion when I was more drunk than than usual. I remember a certain famous occasion when you forced me to confess that you had been drinking. I remember it too. The curse of those occasions is heavy upon me, for I always remember them. I hope it may be taken into account one day when all days are at an end for me. Don't be alarmed. I am not going to preach." I am not at all alarmed. Earnestness in you is anything but alarming to me. Ah, said Carton with a careless wave of his hand as if he waved that away. On the drunken occasion in question, one of a large number, as you know, I was insufferable about liking you and not liking you. I wish you would forget it. I forgot it long ago. Fashion of speech again. But, Mr. Darnay, oblivion is not so easy to me as you represent it to be to you. I have by no means forgotten it, and a light answer does not help me to forget it. If it was a light answer, returned Darnay, I beg your forgiveness for it. I had no other object than to turn a slight thing, which to my surprise seems to trouble you too much, aside. I declare to you, on the faith of a gentleman, that I have long dismissed it from my mind. Good heaven! What was there to dismiss? Have I had nothing more important to remember in the great service you rendered me that day? As to the great service, said Carton, 
I am bound to avow to you when you speak of it in that way that it was mere professional claptrap. I don't know that I cared what became of you when I rendered it. Mind, I say, when I rendered it. I am speaking of the past. You make light of the obligation, returned Darnay, but I will not quarrel with your light answer. Genuine truth, Mr. Darnay, trust me. I have gone aside from my purpose. I was speaking about our being friends. Now you know me. You know I am incapable of all the higher and better flights of men. If you doubt it, ask Stryver, and he'll tell you so. I prefer to form my own opinion without the aid of his. Well, at any rate, you know me as a dissolute dog who has never done any good and never will. I don't know that you never will. But I do, and you must take my word for it. Well, if you could endure to have such a worthless fellow, and a fellow of such indifferent reputation coming and going at odd times, I should ask that I might be permitted to come and go as a privileged person here, that I might be regarded as a useless, and I would add, if it were not for the resemblance I detected between you and me, an unornamental, piece of furniture tolerated for its old service and taken no notice of. I doubt if I should abuse the permission. It is a hundred to one if I should avail myself of it four times in a year. It would satisfy me, I dare say, to know that I had it. Will you try? That is another way of saying that I am placed on the footing I have indicated. I thank you, Darnay. I may use that freedom with your name, I think so, Carton, by this time. They shook hands upon it, and Sidney turned away. Within a minute afterwards, he was, to all outward appearance, as unsubstantial as ever. When he was gone, and in the course of an evening passed with Miss Prost, the doctor, and Mr. Lorry, Charles Darnay made some mention of this conversation in general terms, and spoke of Sidney Carton as a problem of carelessness and recklessness. He spoke of him in short, not bitterly, or meaning to bear hard upon him, but as anybody might who saw him as he showed himself. He had no idea that this could dwell in the thoughts of his fair young wife, but when he afterwards joined her in their own rooms, he found her waiting for him with the old, pretty lifting of the forehead strongly marked. We are thoughtful tonight said Darnay, drawing his arm about her. Yes, dearest Charles. With her hands on his breast and the inquiring and attentive expression fixed upon him, we are rather thoughtful tonight, for we have something on our mind tonight. What is it, my Lucy? Will you promise not to press one question on me if I beg you not to ask it? Will I promise? What will I not promise to my love? What indeed? With his hand putting aside the golden hair from the cheek and his other hand against the heart that beat for him. I think, Charles, poor Mr. Carton deserves more consideration and respect than you expressed for him tonight. Indeed, my own. Why so? That is what you were not to ask me. But I think... I know he does. If you know it, it is enough. 
what would you have me do, my life? I would ask you, dearest, to be very generous with him always, and very lenient on his faults when he is not by. I would ask you to believe that he has a heart he very, very seldom reveals, and that there are deep wounds in it. My dear, I have seen it bleeding. It is a painful reflection to me, said Charles Darnay, quite astounded, that I should have done him any wrong. I never thought this of him. My husband, it is so. I fear he is not to be reclaimed. There is scarcely a hope that anything in his character or fortunes is reparable now. But I am sure that he is capable of good things, gentle things, even magnanimous things. She looked so beautiful in the purity of her faith in this lost man that her husband could have looked at her as she was for hours. And, oh, my dearest love, she urged, clinging nearer to him, laying her head upon his breast and raising her eyes to his, remember how strong we are in our happiness and how weak he is in his misery. The supplication touched him home. I will always remember it, dear heart. I will remember it as long as I live. He bent over the golden head and put the rosy lips to his and folded her in his arms. If one forlorn wanderer, then pacing the dark streets, could have heard her innocent disclosure and could have seen the drops of pity kissed away by her husband from the soft blue eyes so loving of that husband, he might have cried to the night, and the words would not have parted from his lips for the first time. God bless her for her sweet compassion.